Or maybe you can't stand the message, however that works out. God, help us. So last week we focused on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't call a lot of attention to himself. He's more about pointing to, to Jesus and the Father. But we're going to focus on how desperately we need the work of the Holy Spirit. And um, this, this week we're going to talk about him more. And, and my goal, my hope for us, for me, for you, is to increase our desire our dependence and our delight in the Holy Spirit and his work. Uh, we'll look at three ways that he, he works in us. Uh, one is in obedience. Another is in the assurance of being his children. And a third way is in willingness to suffer. So hang in. We'll see what we can do. Let me just uh, ask for God's help again. Would, would you allow me to do that? Great. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit because you are one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you've granted us him to grant us Christ to bring us to yourself. He's the author of your word, and so would you, by your spirit, cause your word to be clear and helpful to us, convincing, convicting, renewing hope, bringing to repentance granting us faith, granting us love, granting us holiness, granting us all that you have for us in Christ this morning. Be my strength and help me to make it clear in how I speak in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So verse 12 in Romans 8 begins with so then, and so then brings in all that we talked about last week. So then, because we walk by the Spirit, we are of the Spirit, in our very nature, set because we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, because we are indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit is life in us, and God will give life to our dead bodies once they're dead, through the one day by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't owe the flesh nothing. That's bad English. We don't owe the flesh anything. The flesh is what we were before receiving Christ. It's our spiritual deadness where we were and opposition to God and his ways. When we receive Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit who unites us to him. In first 11 verses of chapter 8 where we were last week, we saw that we are no longer under the domination of the flesh, but we have new life and new God-pleasing thinking, desiring and willing by the Spirit. But even though the flesh no longer dominates us, it has not yet been entirely exterminated. Because we have the Spirit who enables us to overcome the flesh and one day will completely free us from it, we are not debtors to the flesh. We are not under obligation to the flesh to live by its dictates. When we do, it's because we're like POWs who are set free, but who forget that we're set free and we live like like we once did under the prisonership of sin. Still falling into old thinking and old behaviors as if we were still a prisoner of war. Well, in fact, what Paul says in verse 13 is, if we go on living according to the flesh, we will die. That's hard news. If we go on living according to the flesh, we will die. And he doesn't mean physical death, because that's just true no matter what. 
we're all going to die physically unless Jesus comes back. Paul is saying that those who live according to the desires, the drives, and the deeds of the flesh will suffer eternal death, eternal separation from God. Now, wait a minute. Isn't he talking to believers? If he's talking to believers, is it possible then for someone to trust Christ and be alive in him by the Spirit, to so fall back under the influence of the flesh that they lose the Spirit and thus suffer eternal death, lose the eternal life that they received? Well, no, Paul made clear in the first 11 verses of chapter 8 that people who are either by nature of the flesh or of the spirit, and so they both think and act by the flesh or by the spirit. So we're either of the flesh, spiritually dead, under the domination of our old sinful nature, or we're of the spirit and we think and act accordingly. So therefore, it's simply true that a person who lives under the domination of the flesh doesn't have the Holy Spirit and will die eternally because anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, as he says in verse 9 of chapter 8. Rather than living according to the flesh and dying eternally, if you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live eternally. The work of the Spirit is to transform you more and more into, into being like Jesus. That's his goal. That's what he's about doing in your life conforming you more and more to being like Jesus Christ. A major part of, of that work is to put to death sin in your life, to kill sin. Kill it. So certain will the Spirit do this work that Paul says sin killing is necessary for you to live eternally. If sin isn't being killed in you, you will not live forever. You will perish forever. But notice the Spirit isn't killing sin without your effort. By the Spirit... By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. The reason Paul says you must be putting to death the deeds of the body is that our bodies, all of our physical capacities, are still corrupted by sin and will remain so until the Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies in the resurrection. It is through our body that our flesh acts out. As Puritan writer John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. To kill something is to take away its life so that it is unable to act to carry out its desires. Our aim is not just to wound sin. Our aim is not just to slow it down or just negotiate it with it to act out a little less frequently and a little less clearly. By the Spirit, we are to use deadly force against our sin. To cut off our sin's life support. We do that, don't we? We kind of keep sin on life support. We, we, Well, okay, stay out of the way mostly, but let me keep you just available in case I need you. And, and we're supposed to kill our sin, not other people's sins. We get more concerned about other people's sins. Kill... Our sin. I'm supposed to be killing my sin. And I can talk to you about killing your sin, but my job is to kill my sin. By the way, have you killed any sins lately? Just asking. Paul doesn't specifically describe how we kill sin by the Spirit, 
But in light of what he's already said and other teachings of the Scripture, it's clear that it involves setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, as he talked about in, in verses 5 and 6 and 7, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. In Colossians chapter 3, he says it this way, Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on, on the things that are above, not on things of the earth. And then in Colossians 3, 5, Paul says we must put to death what is earthly in us. And he names some things, sexual immorality. It's interesting, that's always at the front of the list. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Paul lists both sins that we act on as well as sinful desires. We are to kill both sin both at its root and at its fruit. We work both ends. We kill the fruit and we kill the root of sin. We are to kill sinful desires and replace them with godly desires. Can we do that? Can you just, like, change your desire? Well, that's why God gave us the Holy Spirit, is to cause us to be able to change our desires. The Spirit's role is to magnify Christ, to display His goodness and glory, and lead us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In doing this, He leads us to hate the sinful desires and love Christ-centered desires. It's what the Spirit creates in us through the Gospel is uh, called the expulsive power of a new affection. That's the title of a sermon from Thomas Chalmers of the 1800s. The expulsive power of a new affection. And basically in that sermon what he was saying is, through the gospel we exchange old worldly desires for new godly desires. We don't just kill or expel sinful desires only, but by the Spirit we bring new desires to life. That we kill our sins, that we do it by the Spirit, but we do it, means we must exert our wills, our thinking, our wisdom, and zealous effort. We must adopt the mindset that this is a fight to the death. We shoot to kill. That we kill our sinful deeds by the Spirit means we constantly cry out to God our Father and Jesus our Savior to lead us out of temptation and to deliver us from evil, like Jesus taught us to pray. So we're constantly, constantly depending on, on the Father and the Son to enable us to kill sin. We cry to our Father for strength and heart and endurance for the fight that we would show no mercy to our sins. In verse 14, you have the word for. And for means that what he's saying in verse 14 is further amplifying what he taught in verse 13. In verse 13, we just saw, says that those who kill the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit will experience eternal life. Verse 14 clarifies this by saying that those who are the sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit of God. In the context, it is clear that the, a major way the Spirit leads us is He calls and empowers us to put to death the deeds of the body. This verse is not about the Spirit giving us direction and decisions and about things like who to marry, what car to buy, what, what to buy at the grocery store, uh, what school to go to, what job to accept. I'm not saying that God doesn't help us with those decisions. I'm just saying that the language of being led by the Spirit in this verse is not about that. The only other 
verse that uses this language of being led by the Spirit is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And the context is that you must walk by the Spirit so that you do not carry out the desires of the flesh. So the meaning of being led by the Spirit here is not carrying out the desires of the flesh by submitting to the Spirit's leading, very similar to what Paul is saying in Romans 8.14. All those who have the Spirit give evidence of this by submitting to the Spirit's leading. Those who are sons of God live lives guided by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, ruled by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit leads us in obedience to the Lord by inclining our hearts and empowering us to obey. This doesn't mean we just passively wait for the Spirit to, to make us feel like obeying. Well, I, I, I waited, and the Spirit didn't give me the desire, and so I, I didn't act. And we, we, we pursue the independent work on the Spirit, aggressive, killing sin, and obeying the Lord. He leads us to obey specific commands of Scripture. So we, the Spirit has authored the Scripture. He gives us specific commands to obey, and he enables us to obey them. In verse 15, we see that he says, When you received Christ by faith and became a, a son or a child of God, you did not receive a spirit of slavery in which you fall back into fear. That is the fear of God's judgment. So what is the spirit of slavery? What is the spirit of slavery? It's a spirit, an inner attitude of being a slave to sin and thus under condemnation of the law, being a slave to, uh, to the law of God. So that a spirit of slavery to sin and to the law leads us to fear God's judgment. But he says we, he's not given us that spirit. Instead of receiving a spirit of slavery leading us back to, to fall under the fear of judgment and condemnation, we have received the spirit of adoption. We had no natural right to being God's children as we were slaves of sin. But through Christ's redemptive work for us and our being united to him, God has brought us into his family as his beloved sons. He chose us out of our lostness, out of not being his children, and he chose to call us to be his children. The Holy Spirit applies Christ's adoptive grace to us and confirms that we are adopted into God's family. By the Spirit, we cry to God, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. And the word cry is always used to convey intense emotion. So it's not like a, a, a soft, kind of gentle, oh, Abba, Father. It's an intense cry. It could be, could be translated shout, scream, cry out, uh, shriek. The word was used of the demons who, when they saw Jesus, said, Hey, get away from me. You're the Son of God. I don't like you. Or um, the crowds, when they were opposing Jesus, said, Give us Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Or Jesus on the cross, when he cried out and, and gave up his spirit. This is what this word is saying. So it's, it's not a gentle word. It's, not a, it's a cry in desperation. Desperate dependence to God as our Father as we fight to kill sin, among other things. We cry out to God as our protecting, loving Father. Jesus cried to God as Abba in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the cross. 
Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews describes that in, in Hebrews chapter 5. And in Mark 14, we read that Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So in facing his suffering, he, he called upon God as Father. The Spirit produces in us a loving submission to and knowledge of God as our Father. You know, children don't hesitate to seek their fathers for help in things they need. They don't need scripts for to know what to say to their dads. Daddy, help me. Daddy, I'm hurting. Father, I don't know what to do. Daddy, I'm scared. I love you, Father. How wonderful when an adopted child begins calling his adopted father, Daddy. The Holy Spirit is so into working adoption in our lives. He's called the Spirit of Adoption. The Spirit of Adoption. He moves us to pray to Him from our hearts. We don't experience the full closeness with God as Father as we will one day when we are no longer needing to put to death the sinful deeds that we do in our dying bodies. In, in a few verses, in, in verse 23 of chapter 8, Paul says, We groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. Say, well, is Paul contradicting himself? Because he just said we're, we have the adoption of sons, but then he says we're waiting for it. We're, we're waiting for the adoption of sons. Which is it? And the answer is already we are adopted into God's family, but not yet do we have the full inheritance. The resurrected bodies conform to the image of his, of his son, Jesus. The Spirit himself bears witness in verse 16. Verse 16 speaks further to the reason we can confidently cry to God as Father, because the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the, the children of God. The Spirit confirms to our spirit that we are the children of God. This is a gift that comes when, when you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, which is when you receive the Holy Spirit, who gives you new spiritual life by uniting you spiritually to Jesus. The Son. So through the Son of God, we become children of God. The Holy the Spirit's witness to our spirit that we are children of God is not some higher stage of spiritual experience. It's not like the, some, something we progress into when we reach a spiritual high, high point. It comes with the birth package. God wants every one of his children to have this inner conviction that we are his this is not the only way of confirming that we're his sons or daughters, that we're his children. As Paul just taught in this passage that those who are killing sin by the Spirit are led by the Spirit and are sons of God. But along with this is the special work of the Spirit to confirm to our spirits that we are God's children. So uh, the question I have for you is, do you know God as your Father? And do you really know God as your Father? Do you know deep within that you are his child? Do you have that closeness to him, especially when you pray? Do you really know God as Father? Or is he the man upstairs? Is he a far-off deity, a force that you seek when you need help? Do you know that, he's, that you're his child? 
If we are God's children, he says, then, then we are heirs. Verse 17. What do you mean, Paul? Well, he says we're heirs of God, meaning that God, we inherit God as our God, and it also can mean that we inherit all that God has promised us. Well, can you be more specific, Paul? All right, we are fellow heirs with Christ. What Jesus inherits, we inherit. Wow. What Jesus inherits, we inherit. What does that include? In verse 13 of chapter 4, Paul said God's promise to Abraham and, and his offspring, which includes all Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus, who is the ultimate offspring of Abraham, is that they would be heirs of the world. So we inherit the world. We inherit the new earth. And there are many texts that speak of believers in Christ inheriting the kingdom of God and eternal life. That means we will live forever in God's glorious kingdom in glorified bodies that never wear out, never get old, never get sick, never sin, never experience pain, in joyful fellowship with Christ and his people, sharing and governing and serving responsibilities. In fact, Hebrews 1-2 says Jesus is the heir of all things, and so we, we are going to inherit everything. Is that kind of overwhelming or is that exciting? Think of your best experience with your family, your best experience with friends, your best experience with work, your best experience with good food, your best experience with what you enjoy doing. And what we stand to inherit is far, far, far better than that. A dim reflection of our inheritance in the new earth. We are God's children, fellow heirs with Christ. He says, if indeed we suffer with him. And you say, okay, I knew there was a catch to this. I knew that it was too good to be true, receiving this fantastic inheritance. I think I'll just play the lottery. But why shouldn't suffering be part of God's way of conforming us to Christ's likeness? He says, if, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus suffered and then he was raised and glorified. Jesus said that the Old Testament had taught it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter into his glory. Of course, Christ's sufferings were for us to bear punishment for our sins so that we could be right with God. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3:18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. Our suffering doesn't accomplish redemption, but works out what Christ has done in us. The apostles clearly taught that believers in Christ, God's kids will all suffer. Suffering is normal for Christians. It's a travesty that the prosperity gospel has so many proponents in, this, in the world, and it especially has a wide following among those who are poor. Prosperity gospel basically says that if you have faith in Christ, God will bless you with wealth and health. Now, God does often bless his kids with some good things and some good physical health in this life, 
but he does not promise perfect wealth, health, and freedom from suffering in this life. This is not what the apostles teach. So an example of Barnabas and Paul, two apostles going out, and they planted several churches. And in the early days of those churches, they went out and they taught them, um, urging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's no entering God's kingdom without going through many tribulations. We only receive glory as fellow heirs of Christ if we suffer with him, suffer with him in identification with him, in trust and reliance upon him. That's what Peter says in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We know by experience that we often must suffer some hardship to receive something good. You know this. You suffer through school so you can get uh, an education and get some skills and hopefully get a decent job. You, um, you suffer the, the discomforts of pregnancy and childbirth, at least women do, to have children. Athletes suffer the rigors of training to compete and win. By the way, who should, who should we put our, our money down on for winning the, um, the run for your life? Dustin? Okay, we've got one for Dustin back here. Happens to be his son. We suffer good diet habits to be healthy. We suffer by being financially disciplined so we can meet our obligations and achieve long-term goals. And just anything worth achieving requires some self-denial and some, some pain, some suffering. The question that drives your willingness to suffer is, will the gain be worth the pain? Will what I stand to gain be worth the pain? Will what I am suffering to obtain be worth it? Do I even believe I need to suffer to attain the result I'm hoping for? Paul makes it clear that suffering is necessary for receiving the inheritance of God's children, which is the inheritance of Christ. Not that we earn or merit the inheritance by suffering, but that as we suffer, we continue to trust in Jesus in faith that he is at work for his glory and our glory as we suffer by faith in him. Will our inheritance be worth it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, this light momentary affliction, what we're, anything we're suffering in this life, he's calling light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We suffer in killing sin. We suffer in sickness. We suffer in aging. We suffer in feeling left out of the group. We suffer when relationships are broken. We suffer in our jobs. We suffer when we lose a job or face financial hardship. We suffer when we are rejected, mocked, or afflicted for confessing our faith in Christ. We suffer when we are rejected for upholding Jesus' standards. We suffer in advancing the gospel and serving the Lord. Even Christ learned obedience to the things that he suffered. And Jesus didn't have any sin to overcome in learning obedience. He did grow in experiencing how to trust and obey God in suffering. 
if Christ and His humanity needed to learn obedience through suffering, how much more do we? If Jesus in His suffering cried, Abba, Father, how much more must we? John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, um, gave this illustration, and I'll update it for our, our purposes. Always think of life as a journey to receive a great inheritance. Always think of life as a journey to receive a great inheritance. Suppose a man was going to New York to take a possession of a large inheritance, a large estate, and his car should break down a mile before he got to the city, and all he needs to do is get to the city and show up to claim his inheritance. And it required him to, to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we would think him to be if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My car is broken. My car is broken. And that's how it is with us. We stand in, in suffering and faith in Christ to obtain a great inheritance. And we need to trust him in his goodness and his sustaining grace. God's children live by the Spirit in, in obedience, in assurance of being his children, and a willingness to suffer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your Spirit. Lead us in seeing how to put to death sin in our lives. We thank you that you have rescued us from our sin, forgiven us of our sins if we're in Christ. And with that, you've given us the privilege of being able to do battle, overcoming and killing sin. May we, Father, as hard as that is, by your Spirit, be putting to death sin. And thank you, Father, that you lead us by your Spirit to obedience in Christ. Father, may your, may your Spirit have a clear path to our hearts. May he inspire in us and incline our hearts to obedience to you. And that same Holy Spirit, Father, in, our, in the battle that we do against sin, sometimes we wonder, are we, are we your children? Thank you that your Spirit causes us to know that we are your children. And as we suffer many things, may we see your goodness. May we trust in you. May we see that Christ's suffering for us removes the judgmental suffering that we would suffer forever, but we still have to go through suffering in this life to be conformed to your image, Lord Jesus. So sustain us by your grace. Give us joy and hope in suffering, deep confidence that you are doing a glorious work in our lives, no matter what we experience. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for again for the Holy Spirit. May we be constantly seeking, depending upon him and his work in us, to live for Christ. It's in his name we pray.